0: This is Big Red red, Post.
1: network and a gentle reassuring hug this is big red potion the podcast that subscribes to the philosophy of dj atomica i'm your obdurate host sinan kubber editorial and features director for the game reviews and basking in the fading glow of an american summer is my partner in crime the man who puts the complex into shadow complex tgr's complicated previews director joe delia joe it's a pleasure as always and how the hell are you
0: I've been doing pretty good, sir. I actually, uh, we welcomed my girlfriend's new niece into the world, uh, Emma Claire. So I got to see her yesterday, and that was a lot of fun. And played with the new cat, uh, their new cat Oreo, who likes to jump up on screen doors like he's Spider-Man and then fall off because he has no clue what to do once he gets up there. So that was a, that was an interesting day.
1: Awesome. Well, congratulations on, on the niece and Laura. Is that suggesting too much yes, about your relationship with your girlfriend?
0: That's about right. I'll take okay. it.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Right. On to our guests, or this week, just our one guest uh, in the Big Red Pod panel, because, uh, well, he's he's so special that he can hold it all on his own. So, completing our set of First World Rebate hosts, and hopefully unlocking the secret fourth member of the podcast, (laughs) we're proud to welcome the mesmeric Sean Ryder onto the show this week. Uh, And when it comes to there and that, Sean's been and done it. He's uh, run a long-standing online game magazine, he's lectured on game design, he's uh, currently a web technologist for PBS, and now he's, of course, on this show, which any aspiring person in any field should
2: aspire for. So, Sean, Good. thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be here. And I've uh, been a long time listener. And so, really excited to finally get to uh, join Trevor and Shane in the ranks of the Big Red Planet, Big Red Potion initiated. <laughs> you could have a Big Red Planet, too. But. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs>
1: Well, certain, last but not least, even though... I, I, it, <laughs> I better not say that just in case Trevor are <laughs> <is> listening. <laughs> <laughs> so, this week we're going to be talking about video game protagonists, a nice small topic. Uh, we're going to be talking about their history, their evolution, whether current video games are successfully exploring their potential, and maybe anything else, we'll see where we go with this one. Uh, like uh, Joe was saying before the show, we'll throw the darts and see where they land. So... Sean, we like to throw questions at the guest right from the right off the bat. So her uh, sure. up, Sean. <laughs> um, <laughs> which which video game protagonists have stood out the most for you in history, and, and not necessarily you know just just the good ones for better or for worse? Which video game protagonists come first to your mind?
2: Wow, I um I immediately realised that I didn't actually think of any negative examples um, <laughs> when you just asked that question. Um, I kind of have. I think, uh, two characters that, that stand out to me whenever I get asked the question about, about my favorite characters in video games in general, and they both happen to be, uh, agonists. And, um, I think the first one is, uh, Abe from Oddworld. (laughs) You know, um, he's not a plumber. (laughs) He's, he's someone whose, you know, occupation I can get more behind. Um, he, uh, it's the the odd word franchise in general is is i think one of the greatest um sort of narrative experiments in games and i think that especially for the time period that those games were coming out they were uh incredibly relevant to both you know technology as well as um politics and and world events in a way that um that most other games just have no hope in the world of being and um and they certainly caught me at a time in my life where uh where all of the all of those things combined to resonate with me, and um, and have always made uh, Abe one of my one of my absolute favorites. So, so that's where I would start it with.
1: Okay, excellent. Well, let, let's go a bit further. That what is what is it specifically about his character? I mean, you meant Oddworld is a game that I I think I've heard countless people mention as uh, being an important game to him, but I've never really heard people talk about the character specifically. So, uh, and and this coming from I, I've not actually played the game myself, so. What is it about his character that resonates with you?
2: You know, I think one of it is that uh, he's sort of conscious. You know, I think this was a conscious design um, decision on the part of you know Lorne Lanning and um, the whole group, but that that uh, he's not the traditional hero. You know, he's not the the big burly guy with a lot of weapons and everything. Uh, you know, uh, and and this is um, told through some really excellent. Um, cinematics um abe is is basically uh the chosen one of his people the mudokins are exploited um by this terrible outside race that comes and sort of corporatizes uh the entire uh planet and uh forces them to work with them and in um in the very first game he realizes that uh, they're planning on turning uh the the uh his people from slaves into products which is uh, probably the only worse thing than a slave right he He is kind of fits this sort of Moses archetype right which is, which we see in other characters in video games as well, uh, where he 's sort of the only one who can see the light, the chosen one of his people, um, but at the same time sort of reinforced through gameplay, you know Abe. It never is able to directly harm anything. He he can sort of possess other creatures and sort of do harm like through an intermediary, but uh but the large um parts of the gameplay rely on him being sort of uh quick witted and uh sneaky and um, you know, the the gameplay of at least the first two odd world games, which are the are the ones that, that concern themselves really primarily with Abe, uh, is a puzzle type of uh, 2D platformer gameplay. Um but one of the first games, you know, where like everybody's excited about Shadow Complex right now, but if you if you kind of look at it, um Shadow Complex is sort of almost a, an ultra predictable epic kind of epic, you know, mega games kind of take on um, you know, the the odd world formula which was to give this super beautiful lush 2D environment that that could break into 3D uh animations and and, and things like that. So so i think there's there's just a lot of things um, about Abe and about the way that he 's presented in the game um, you know he's he 's made into a full character he's a he 's a funny kind of lovable kind of character you have like a a fart button on him, so you know you you can 't get too into him as as like a a, a role model of like i 'm going to become you know i think a lot of something that that gives me a lot of distaste and a lot of um, uh, game heroes is is you know, this sort of like feeling like I'm supposed to identify with some, you know, big brawny dude with a giant gun and, and, you know, who kills everything that that comes in front of him. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, they, the, the folks at Oddworld inhabitants really managed to create a really good narrative distance where, um, you know, it's not a game where you're trying to necessarily be Abe, you know, um, but, but you're certainly so involved with him that you want to see him, you know, find his way out of the various predicaments that he gets into.
1: So you, you kind of, Mentioned uh, the kind of stereotypical burly, masculine, testosterone characters who can have games. I mean, would you say those those are your most negative examples of video game protagonists? Kind of the Marcus Phoenixes of the world? Because uh, I, I would certainly <laughs> say for me that they don't do much for me <laughs> except at a amusing level, kind of laughing at them, not with them <laughs> uh, level. No.
2: Although, I mean, I admire, um, Gears of War and Gears of War 2 for just being so out there about its homosocial, uh, endorsements, <laughs> you know. Um, I, I, I see that game as being like, those, those games as being so over the top about the characters. It's like reading Beowulf, you know. It's, it's like, <laughs> um, it's like this crazy, uber masculine environment. And, and so they almost actually get to a level where I can forgive Marcus Phoenix, you know, more than I can forgive someone like, um, you know, Duke Nuke, but, but even those, I don't find as offensive as, as things like, you know, Crash Bandicoot. I mean, um, <laughs> so
1: I guess I would rather
2: have the horribly offensive than the horribly vapid, but I, uh, you know, yeah.
1: <laughs> it's interesting you bring up Crash, because I, I, when we were preparing the show notes, I noticed Joe, uh, highlighted Crash Bandicoot. So I'll go, yeah. to you. I'll go to you, Joe. Joe, um, what, which characters appeal to you, and uh, is one of them Crash?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I... Uh, well, when we were talking about the show, I, I brought up Crash more as an example of a character that became, like, a giant success. I don't know if I would really identify with him or call him one of my favorites, but it uh, actually one that I would go to is by the same creators. Um, in recent years, I think the best character that's come out of, you know, many games is uh, Nolan North's... Uh, drake from uncharted i think nathan drake kind of you know he's got you know of course he is basically the action hero he's the indiana jones type character but he also i mean he's not a badass he doesn't rush into every room guns ablazing, ready to take everyone out he's kind of just a, a dude who got thrown into the wrong situation and has to kind of get his way out of it and i think they infused him i think naughty dog has done this a lot in their in their games, they use their characters a lot of personality. They make them very likable. They try to make them stand out from the traditional platformer characters, traditional action game characters. And I think with uh, with they really, they kind of set a bar as far as like the third person action platformer characters, as, as far as you know, making this person interesting. And of course, they establish Nolan North as pretty much the only guy that you can go to now as a as a voice actor <laughs> in a game because he's been in twenty five games since then. But um, I mean, yeah, honestly, like the only game this year that I was really, aside maybe from Batman, the only game this year that I was really looking forward to playing as a specific character is Uncharted 2.
2: And I think that says a lot. You know, that's really interesting that you bring up Uncharted, because I think it's fascinating how it's a game that is trying to emulate a movie genre that is historically sort of known for having these kind of real flat protagonists Mm -hmm. that are are someone that you can kind of... You know, like you think about Indiana Jones or Buck Rogers or someone like this who, you know, this is Uncharted. The series is very much this kind of serial cinema kind of homage in video games. And I think it's excellent at at everything that it's trying to do for the most part. And the characters are really resonant. I mean, the relationship between, like, Nathan and Elena, I'm in seeing previews for Uncharted 2. I'm like, hmm, what are they going to do about that? And I... I, I don't even think that I've ever been concerned about like what was going to happen next in a character's love life in like a game series, you know, and um, and so I, I always find it really remarkable that they can they both manage to engender that kind of love for the characters and that that sort of affection and and um, and resonance in, in their emotional relationships um, while trying to mimic a genre that that I think you know I never felt that way like in an Indiana Jones movie or anything.
1: I, I remember. I wrote a, something on my blog earlier this year about Nathan Drake, about because uh, British Game Magazine over here, um, GamesTM, one of the editorials, the author believed that Nathan Drake could join the upper echelons of video game icons, like the Sonics and the Marios and uh, the Lara Crofts. And I wrote a post on that kind of agreeing cynically with it. And one of my commenters mentioned that because Nathan Drake is so generic in the way that he is, he looks and he's dressed in that game, uh, and that he won't be able to join anyone like Mario or Lara Croft or Sonic because he's simply not stand out enough. And I, I've, I've not really ever discussed that with anyone, so um, I'm kind of interested to hear your guys' thoughts. Because th- there have been other people, I've, I've certainly heard other people saying that Nathan Drake has the potential to be one of video games uh, gaming's best characters ever, and uh, whatever that means. But, <laughs> um, I mean, what, what are your guys' thoughts? Do you think that... Uncharted is one of those series that has the potential to make Drake into a household gaming name.
0: Well, I mean, I don't think that really those kind of characters exist anymore, like the the Marios and the Sonics. I mean, when's the last time you really had this one standout character become so huge that they've eclipsed, you know, most of everything else in gaming? I think it's hard to really say that, you know, that still happens that often in games. I, I think Lara might be one of the last ones that actually went to that level. And I don't, I mean, it's, it's, Tough because I think the thing with Nathan is that he just really stands out this day, this time and age, when most game characters are completely forgettable. And there's really nothing special about any of them. They all pretty much stick to the same stereotypes of, oh, well, this guy's going to be the badass that doesn't take any shit from anyone. Or, you know, this guy's going to be the, the guy who got roped into the situation he didn't want to be in. But Nathan kind of just has a lot of personality traits that most other games don't even bother to try and implement. And I think that's why he really stands out now. That's why people are, you know, trying to put him up to this level of, of the crops and everything. Because they kinda want to see more characters like that. And and Nathan's really the only one trying to do something in that way.
2: Yeah, I I completely agree with you, Joan. I also think another good comparison to make is sort of with uh, Ryu and Shinmu. Who was really put out there at the time of the Dreamcast as being one of the forefront characters? I mean, when you would see sort of those uh, advertising images with conglomerations of Dreamcast characters, there would be you know Sonic and everyone, and then Ryu would always kind of look a little out of place, you know, (laughs) with his sort of real world um, you know garb, (laughs) garb, right? (laughs) Uh, You know, the the clothes that regular people wear. and so so I definitely uh can see, you know, that that argument that that these kinds of characters do look out of place in the current pantheon of, of video game characters. But but the current pantheon of video game characters is really so, you know, genre restricted, like from a narrative point of view as well as a gameplay point of view, that I think it's it's really unfair to it would be unfair to doom a character because they didn't fit into sort of what is currently popular in in sales today, you know? Or at least commonly seen I guess.
1: I I think just to to come back to what you were saying, Jade, like is would you argue Master Chief is maybe the last of those examples for, for the Halo franchise?
0: Well I think the Chief uh I mean he's only up to that level because those games are just so damn popular. I don't really think that like I mean, of course, people do like the story in Halo and they like the universe, but I don't really think the Chief is that strong of a character. I mean, he's a markable character. He's one that people know and that they can totally put on a T-shirt and people would buy. But I think it's more just because, you know, I think Halo, more than anything else, is built around multiplayer and you don't really get any character out of the multiplayer. It's just these avatars that you take. And I think that's pretty much what makes the Chief one of those characters. I wouldn't say that his personality or that his story is anything so spectacular that he deserves to be up there with, you know someone like that, though I suppose Lara and Mario never really had a particularly great story or personality. They just became really popular so that they've been, you know, forced up to that level. But I don't know. I think that, you know, Drake stands out a little bit more than someone like the chief or anyone like that. I think he has a, a bit more to him than those characters do. And I think that, you know, I don't uh, like, uh, like Sean was saying about Ryu. I think he's just a, a better character overall than, than many of those other ones.
1: I think that's fair. That is fair enough. I'm, I, I guess what it brings us on to is the idea of what purpose a video game protagonist actually serves. And, you know, Drake is intensely likable as a character, and he made that story for me in Uncharted. Mm. But, you know, you mentioned Master Chief, you mentioned Marion, you mentioned Lara Croft, and like you say, they are characters with not much to them who've become icons, very successful. So, Sean, what, what do you... Believe is the main role, main purpose of a video game protagonist in a game. Or are there many different purposes that they can serve?
2: There's, I think, there's at least sort of three ways that I see uh, protagonists in video games. I I think that that you have to kind of recognize a pragmatic. Uh, if you're if you're building an interactive experience in in some way shape or form uh the embodiment of the player is is often required or at least for a lot of different types of experiences is completely required and so um how that embodiment takes shape is is really uh up to the the game designers. And I think that's really where we get video game protagonists. I think that if we didn't have a need for that kind of in game embodiment of the character, we would be playing a lot of games that were maybe more, a lot more like films or something, you know, where, uh, you might follow characters, but not really be so much in the character, you know? So I think game developers right out the, at the gate have to make a decision. Are they going to try to, you know, simulate, which, which I consider to be sort of broadly just putting the player in the game, you know, uh, Something like the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater series, right, where I can make a skater who looks just like me or um, a lot of MMOs, you know, where I, I'm really trying to make a character that's some reflection of at least some kind of aspect of my persona, um, or they can, you know, game developers can try to make the player care about a character, and I think that's where we get the best sort of third-person characters. And I think that's where I would put the Drakes, um, the Abes, the 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 Jades. I'm gonna throw that name into the mix. Um, uh i think you know strong stories built around this protagonist where where the gameplay supports the development of the protagonist and everything and and um and i really feel like that's where narrative in games are are coming together and then i feel that um that that there's this third play position and and it's the position that i personally find uh the least um enjoyable which is where they try to make the player into a you know they try to make the protagonist into this sort of invisible, uh, you know what they what game most game developers who try to use this trick they'll call it like a, a mirror or something like that, right? That that Master Chief is so so much of nothing that they can be anything and and you know we can all be our little soldiers in our little armor and you know we're all the same but we're all unique because we've got our own little sticker on us or whatever and. um and that that works for, like, multiplayer games or something, maybe, but, but, for you know, to sustain a narrative, I mean, the narrative of Halo is so little about the Master Chief, and that's, that's why, because it's just not even a character, really. I mean, you may as well just be flying around a big camera with a gun on it or something, you know, um, and I think, you know, some games try to play with that, and I think, like, a game like Bioshock, you know, um, starts out that way where you feel like you 're really this kind of nobody character, and then as you work your way through the game, uh things happen in the game story that play on this that that aspect of the protagonist so so they kind of get an exit card but but yeah things things like Master chief I just find um to be the least compelling and and those games are only fun because the act of playing a game is fun you know
0: I think what you said about being a camera with a gun, I think that is like. 92% of the games that I've played I mean that kind of fits the role right there I mean you know a, a lot of games they're just they, the characters are either just so vapid or uninteresting or you know they fit one of those stereotypes like the badass character that I really have no interest in in learning about or playing as and it becomes almost to the point where, yeah, you know, this character is there, and technically I am them, but I'm really just playing this game, and I'm having fun playing this game, and what they do really has is of no interest to me whatsoever. It's just, uh, you know, like I played through Resistance 2, which I know is something that um, you're going to be doing, Sudan, uh, pretty soon. Right. But, um, like, the main character in that, uh, uh, what's the hell? Nathan Hale, I believe it's called, like, he literally is, like, the stereotypical Angry, gruff-voiced idiot who talks like this and gives everyone attitude because he's so badass. And, like, it really was just such a frustrating thing to watch in that game because, like, I mean, you're not saying that, you know, the the whole aliens invading Earth thing really could have been something special uh, narrative-wise. But, I mean, they could have done something a little better with it, and instead, every time the character opened his mouth, I cringed. And, like, that's the thing. Like, that game I pretty much was just playing as this, you know, camera with a gun because I kind of didn't want to play as this Nathan Hale character. I just wanted to get through the game and see all the set pieces that they put into it for me. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the purpose of a protagonist in a narrative game, I mean, <laughs> unless it is the the Nathan Drakes or, as you said, the Jades of the world, it's kind of hard to, to look at them as anything but a camera with a gun.
1: Well, to play Devil's Advocate, if I can, there's an argument maybe, and I uh, this is something... I guess Sean was saying regards how the developers would maybe argue it, that in a war situation, which I guess is what most of these games you're referring to, the, the camera of a gun will be set in, that uh, the soldier is reduced to something in, insignificant, it, uh, has something small that's part of a larger sum, and that by making the character so vapid, you're shifting attention onto the into onto the events of the war, and uh, again, I'm saying I'm playing devil's advocate. I just mm-hmm. I'd be interested to see what your answer is, in, uh, because uh, I think personally, there's a bit of a weak argument.
2: Well, yeah, it's also an argument that sort of only works for a portion of the game. I think that for the multiplayer portion of the game, Halo has relatively strong, you know, character creation tools. Right, like I, I can make my armor, you know, my color, and I can put my stickers on it. I can put, you know, my motto in and have my, you know, chosen screenshot on my home page and stuff like that. Right. So mm. from that angle, I think it actually holds up much better as creating a narrative that somewhere in the universe, there's this ongoing battle and we're all kind of teleporting into it, you know, to, uh, play our role in it as these faceless soldiers. Right. right. Um, but but then, when you actually play the story mode of, of Halo, where you're supposed to be, like, the last savior of humanity, you know, um, at that point, you know, we're, I mean, you, you know, I, I think about, you know, like, like Kings, you know, that, that ser- American uh, TV series that got so tragically <laughs> killed. Um, this uh this summer, but you know the the whole thing built around you know we we like to remember heroes right like people who save humanity get their names written down you know and and they get uh you know lauded in movies and stuff like that and and on in halo we're supposed to believe that we are playing a person like that who has been honored you know and everything right. but uh but who is still this just nobody you know i think that's where the problem comes in right
1: I think. The best counter argument for it for me is is probably the Call of Duty games, because especially Call of Duty 4, which I think for me made the most of the characters that you that uh, your protagonist uh, is accompanying in that game. So you you actually get a sense of the personalities, even if they're not incredibly detailed or complex characters, they they still have personalities. They still have a certain level of uh, a certain a role to play in, in that game and uh, I think what that game did for me was not necessarily give your protagonist much character, but at least made him feel that he was part of, of a small thing that had a personality within, a, within the larger thing. And uh, what it did so great, and especially in that game, is to remind you quite bluntly with a, a certain scene that uh, you are a part of a, a much bigger thing and that your, your character is insignificant. But it, it didn't do it in a way that made, made you feel like it wasn't worth playing it just sort of went oh god yeah this is a war Um mm-hmm. which I, I, I I'm not saying that, that that's maybe the best approach I'm saying I think it, it did a much better job than say something like Resistance or Halo which I, I completely agree with you guys I, I had Nathan Hale does nothing for me he's a completely rapid character like you say Joe
0: yeah I mean and I think you just brought up something interesting is that, you know, I was thinking about it before how most games uh kind of put you in the role of the character that will change everything. You know, you, you're the center of the universe in most games, I will say. But in Call of Duty, they kind of did something interesting in that you were just one of the many that, you know, that did some good in this war and like as they kept switching you from from soldier to soldier to soldier and they did this in all of the call of duties but you kind of just you feel like you're you're part of this group of of larger things you're not the one person that's going to change you're not basically the infamous character where you are the person that is going to change the tide of how things are going and i think that's really interesting i like it when they do that when they just make you a seemingly normal person within this this world of of chaos and um you know, it kind of shows that not every game has to put you into the Gordon Freeman shoes to to make it interesting narratively.
1: There's his name. Mm-hmm. I was wondering how long it would take for Gordon to get <laughs> mentioned.
0: <laughs> Someone had to do it.
1: Well, well let's get straight into that because I, I guess it kind of plays into what you were saying, Sean, about developers expecting players to. Superimposed himself upon characters and the one the one name that always gets mentioned by that and not least by me is gordon freeman uh from the half-life series what, what's your take on on gordon freeman
2: well see that's that's where i have to somewhat eat my words because certainly uh, scientists as protagonists uh i think is something that doesn't happen nearly enough in video games and uh, i far prefer to be playing the scientist instead of just saving scientists who are you know running around in their lab coats? <laughs> Gordon Freeman is 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 sort of a conundrum because on the on the one hand, again, you know I think you have to recognize that the amount of influence that technology has on what kind of narratives can be created, what kind of narratives get supported to be created, and um and then the decisions that get made, and and I you know it's no mistake that. That Half-Life being one of the foundational first-person shooters of you know the 1990s, um, it, of course the character uh, who who is that protagonist is is not going to have a, a physical embodiment. You know, we think about like Doom and the Marine, right? We don't we don't know who that is. You know, and that that is very much the the Halo thing. And, and so I would see Half-Life as being the first game that was really trying to. Uh, give you back the notion of character in uh, in first-person shooters. And there, there, there were other games, you know, kind of uh, contemporary to Half-Life or, or that came relatively soon after Half-Life. I'm thinking of things especially like um, System Shock 2 right. and stuff, which was a bit after that. But, um, you know, that, that also experimented with that and because I think developers quickly saw that the technology of the first-person shooter gave them something that they really wanted to work with in game development, but that it also created these really significant... You know stumbling blocks i mean i 've had a lot of developers at e three talk to me about how in this game, we made the decision to go third person because we wanted to make the the player care more about the character and so they need to be able to see how cute it is and everything um, i 've also had developers tell me in, the, in this game we have such an awesome graphics engine that we want people to be able to appreciate the movement of you know this character's hair or something like that right so that's why they they went third person and so you know technology decisions always get wrapped up in these narrative decisions you know and um and i think that that if you view it that way it makes a little more sense why half-life really does break the mold and gordon freeman does become end up becoming this kind of um more sympathetic nobody character you know uh where you you do kind of find yourself, I don't know, wanting, or, or at least projecting some aspect of yourself onto him. Um, so I think they're relatively successful with that, actually.
0: I mean, yeah, like when, when Half-Life came out, I think it was, what, 1997, I believe, uh, there really was nothing else. I mean, there was the, you know, there was the, the Doom Marine and the B.J. Blaskowitzes of the world, but, I mean, the, the fact that I think what Valve did, and which a lot of developers kind of try and do now, is is envelop this story around the character that you're kind of walking, almost like an amusement park ride, where you're kind of walking through all of these things happening in front of you, and everything, in a way, the story gets told to you that way without you actually being involved. Like, Gordon doesn't talk or anything like that, yet everything happens around him well enough that you, you get a sense of what's going on, and you get a feeling for who this character is, even though he can't say anything to you and stuff like that. And especially in, in episodes one and two, where they have... um or actually, uh, Half-Life Two as well, where they have uh, Alex basically being your your entry point into this world. Alex, you know, she talks to you. She she gets everything explained for you. She she kind of acts as this you know this partner throughout the game that you you care for and you want to see uh, taken care of and everything like that. And when something happens to her, you kind of do you know. Uh, get worried or whatever like that. I think they did a great job of characterizing Gordon not just through his own actions but also through the actions of the people around him and what they react to him and the ways that they react to him and I think that's great and I think that kind of uh, storytelling is is definitely uh, one of the, the best ways to go in a first person game.
1: There's this great YouTube video um, which I found is Half-Life and Half-Life 2 in 60 seconds and mm. it's, it's basically a, a, a 2D animation that very quickly explains the plot of, of those two games. And I think it happens about 10 or 11 times throughout the game. You have ancillary characters going, Gordon Freeman, Gordon Freeman, Gordon Freeman, Gordon Freeman, Gordon Freeman. Mm. And that's just, I think that beautifully illustrates that game, because like you say, it's all about the, the world around Gordon reacting to him, and, and in fact just registering him, saying that he's there. And, and I mm. think, especially in Episode one and two, the, the way Alex communicates with gordon gives it doesn't i think i've said before it gives him personality and i think that's not quite right but it you can it it gives him it's difficult to, to verbalize it gives him something to react to and you can almost kind of estimate or guess at what how his personality would be how would someone deal with being you know the the hero the chosen one in this world how would they deal with this relationship with this female character who clearly is smitten with him but he has to protect and it, it just you can kind of establish personality points about him and mm. but because like he is silent and and silent protagonist is something we're going to get into from this obviously um you can not, superimpose superimposing projects are very difficult words to I don't, I don't think they quite verbalize how how you how you are with him but you can Get into that world a bit more, because you can kind of accept that, in, identify with him, and I guess because he is like a scientist, like you said, Sean, he's not that burly, masculine hero, so it doesn't feel like he's completely uh, unidentifiable with. And I guess I, that's difficult. I, my views on Gordon Freeman change from day to day. One, <laughs> one day I, I think he's the best video game character ever created, and the other time I, I go a bit more with what... Um, other people have said that uh, maybe we say too much about him, and the fact he's actually just as bland and uh, lifeless as any. You mentioned Bioshock, Sean, and I again, that's another silent protagonist, but you. you You mentioned all the sort of slightly different things it went to. How how did you find that game in terms of how it handled its silent protagonist?
2: Well, you know, I think actually that it relates well back to what you were just saying, because to me, so much of what makes a game worthwhile and from both, you know, a gameplay and a narrative point of view is... It's just simple f- fidelity and craftsmanship. And there, there are some people out there who are really, really good at making certain things happen. And that, that might be really good at making excellent controls that are super responsive. Um, or that might be, you know, writing the, the right dialogue at the right time. And, and so Bioshock, I think, you know, Joe, your example about the funhouse ride, uh, it, it's true. Bioshock is in a lot of ways just a dark ride, right? Where, um, you're pretty much on rails and you, uh, run through this crazy adventure and you see these absolutely amazing set pieces and you get these sort of really relatively cliche kind of just sort of shock surprises. And yet the entire time, everything feels so right. And so, um, so good about playing it that, that you give yourself over to this narrative and the narrative, you know, doesn't make a lot of assumptions about you. I mean, I think that, that, you know, that's, that 's always one of the tough things to do with the kind of silent protagonist is is it's like writing in the second person almost where everything becomes translated to you 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 and you know um in bioshock that that definitely happens where uh you um you're you're you take on, you know, kind of this, this personality and, and because it doesn't make that many assumptions about you, it's, you're not the phenomenal, highly trained, you know, mercenary. Uh, it becomes a little bit easier, I think, to slip into that role and the fidelity of everything makes you want to, to fall into that role. And uh, so, so I think, you know, largely that's, that's why I see that game works, you know, and, um and it, and it certainly did, work for me I mean I I was with it all the way uh, to the end and um and I enjoyed it really thoroughly and I feel incredibly ambivalent about the idea of the next one so um, <laughs> you know because I wasn't really into it with the character it's not like I wanted to see what the character did in the future I was into it for the experience that got created that I was able to experience sort of uh, again so to use your metaphor literally like riding in the seat that was like shaped like that character you know um, but so that I don't know. That's my starting point for Bioshock, at least.
1: I mean, this is getting get a bit off ten, a bit tangential, but do you not see any interest in in finding out the the workings of that thrill ride, <laughs> kind of the, the how to how it happened of that thrill ride, which I guess is what Bioshock Two is involved with.
2: Oh, I'm. I mean, I'll definitely be playing it, and I I always hope to be uh, pleasantly surprised. Like I say, I feel ambivalent in that. You know, I'm just it would be very easy to make a very bad game, (laughs) you know, I think out of it. And, and that would forever taint your memory of, you know, all of the future (laughs) or all of the past, uh, Bioshock games. You know, this is, this is coming from somebody who has a tattoo of the rebel Alliance insignia. So, um, you know, (laughs) I'm very, uh, conscious about this, um, (laughs) about the whole idea of, you know, that things change after you think that they're settled, you know, um, And uh, you know you can you can it it can always affect sort of retrograde affect uh, your your feelings about a piece of work.
0: I was actually thinking like while he was explaining that I was actually also thinking of uh, Portal in a way because it's really not the main character in that game. She's just a blank slate and. There's, they really uh-huh. don't tell you anything whatsoever about that character. Um, you get to see her at one point in, like, the portal, but that's about it. But, you know, uh, it's kind of just that everything around her is, is happening. And, of course, there's, there's, more that, uh, there's more, I guess, that you do in that game than, than in something like Bioshock. But uh, as you're running through this world that's slowly breaking down and getting to this point that you have to get to, pretty much, and, and battling this this force that has been pulling you, pulling the strings on you throughout this entire thing. I think it's just a very interesting way of delivering a narrative. I think Bioshock did that really well. And I think that, um, you know, it, it, it tells you more about that that character's uh, story than any, you know, dialogue sequence would between the character and someone else. And I, I think Valve is like a master at that. They do that extremely well in all their even in Left 4 Dead, where, you know, those characters, the only personality you get is in the brief fleeting conversations that they have, yet the story of the world is told through these little scribblings on the walls and these little things that you may see in the background, stuff like that. They, the whole entire story of that zombie outbreak was told indirectly, but you kind of get a great feeling for that world based around those little little things that they threw in. And I think, that's, I think Valve especially can do that very well in all of their games.
1: To go back to Bioshock, um, I wrote when I heard about the movie coming out that... Because I'm, I'm, I'm less cynical than you, Sean, about the second game. Well, less ambivalent, should I say. Um, <laughs> but when it comes to the movie, which I believe at this current moment is off in terms of
3: mm. status,
1: uh, I was I was incredibly cynical because for me, that, mm-hmm. the whole point of that game is that you viewed it from that first-person perspective. Mm. You you saw through the eyes of that character. So if it was from the third-person perspective, and again, this goes to the whole technological thing you were saying, Sean, I don't think the twist would have had nearly as much impact because mm-hmm. it wouldn't be a twist on... on that relates to you it would be a twist that relates to the character you'd be going oh man he he fooled you, <laughs> you <know? laughs> whereas it, it felt like he'd fooled us uh, the, the player um, in that twist if, I, if I'm spoiling it for anyone my god why haven't you played
0: Bioshock <laughs> um, so. you can't listen to this show without having played Bioshock that's yes. just not allowed so go <laughs> <Seriously>. ahead spoil <laughs> away
1: seriously the, the interesting rego- thing regards the protagonist of Bioshock is something um, a friend uh, uh, of ours Brad Galloway over at Game Critic said um, if you remember early on in that game, the character finds one of those vials which, you know, does all the genetic mutations and injects himself with it. And something I didn't really consider at the time, but he kind of does that for no apparent reason. Uh, he just he just decides, you know what, I found this and I'm going to inject it into myself. And uh, what Brad argued is that that kind of took him out of the character because he wouldn't have done that. Obviously, <laughs> he'd have, he'd have <laughs> left the vial in its place. Um, and I, it. it brings us on to an interesting subject. What what do you guys think about video game characters who you're supposed to empathize with, but they do things that you wouldn't normally do, uh, but you're still supposed to kind of feel some kind of attachment to them? And, and I guess the greatest example of that has been, in recent times, has been Nico Bellic from the Grand Theft Auto 4 game.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
1: uh, what, what are you guys' mm-hmm. thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, the, one of the things that always bugged me about games is how, you know, they'll, they'll give you control over a character through 95% of the way, and then at the end they will you know relinquish control and they'll have that character do something that you don't get an an option in. and i think grand theft auto is a great case of this because i I didn't particularly empathize with nico i didn't like the character that much but um especially during some of the more you know brutal things that he did in that game i I just found myself saying you know i would never do this this is something that i don't want to see happen but i mean like in games that give you choice uh, you know even if i say to myself yeah i'm going to totally play this game as an evil character uh i want to see what happens i i find myself quickly forgetting to do that uh, a couple minutes in and going with what i think is right and i kind of you know place myself into those type of situations and decide what i would do and i think it's it's hard for us to really get attached to a character when they're doing these things that you don't really want to see happen and i think that uh you know i think in infamous there's a few key ca- uh cases where uh during like the non-interactive cutscenes, something would happen that uh you know if you were given control you would try to stop or something along those lines but it, it becomes just something that you have to watch and unfortunately deal with the consequences of later and i think that especially now when gaming narrative has become very interactive in many ways that they should kind of kind of take the gordon freeman approach and let you Interact with everything that is happening in front of you, or find a way at least to put some type of choice into it with the player, instead of just saying, "Hey, well, you know what? We need this to happen for our story, so you got to watch it and you got to deal with it."
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's it's kind of, uh, and not to not to kind of harp on the whole form and content thing, but I mean, it, it does come back to this this whole question of of like. You know, developers want to make things, you know, in in something like Infamous, like, why can you choose what abilities you have, you know, if you, Mm -hmm. it's either like a superhero simulator, or it's like the story about this particular thing that happened, you know, but, but it's straddling in between. And I, I feel that way on on so many of these games that that uh, you know, like, like Fable 2, uh, I felt this way about, I feel this way about, um, you know, Knights of the Old Republic. And although there, I think the fictional um setting helps cover it up a bit, because it's like, you don't have to really evolve the story that already exists. But, but in the end, it's this clumsy kind of these, these good evil kind of choices, which I think in a lot of ways, you could make an argument that this is just lazy storytelling, you know, that that part of mm-hmm. the job of, an author is to make those decisions. This character is good, or this character is bad. I mean, you can't imagine like great works of fiction that could go either way. You know, although we can maybe make that a Twitter meme. Um. <laughs> 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 Done.
1: Look how <out> tomorrow. <laughs> uh,
2: but but really, I mean, it, it would radically alter the story. You know, if Romeo decided he didn't like Julia and could just go with these two redheads over here. You know, um, that would not be the same story, and you would not think of it the same way, and it would not feel the same way when you kind of enacted that. you know. And I think that's, that's the tension that you, that you have with these things that are interactive, is that you're giving over part of that control. It's kind of like Stephen Poole said about uh, Resident Evil 2. I think one of the greatest criticisms of Resident Evil 2 that I ever read was, was his uh, essay about how the camera angles in that game being stationary were both Essential to create the ambiance and the and the fright of the game, but also one of the things that were totally anti-video game about that game. You know, the notion of taking away you know camera control or something is really counter to what could be done in an interactive environment. You know, yeah. so um, so there's there's a lot of uh, you know things decisions that I think again get made because of these these sort of uh, technological reasons or just maybe because we're still trying to explore these these media and um, and, and we're, we're not yet sure how to deal with that tension between freedom of choice and that sort of authorial intent you know
1: I, I almost 100% agree <laughs> um, I feel especially with Infamous, I, I read recently a post from our previous guest on the show, Angelo about Infamous and he, he argued that the choice the choices in that game were more multifaceted than the choices in something like Fable 2 or Fallout 3 because the main character Cole went through his thoughts regarding choice. So he'd go, should I should I do this or should I do that? These are the pros, these are the cons. Mm-hmm. And I understand that, but I, I think maybe that, from my perspective, I was reading quite a lot into something which I just thought was establishing the plot, really, in, in that case. I mean, saying for Fallout 3, you'll just have the, the peripheral characters to say that information to you or be to. And for me in Infamous, what I don't think he, he agreed with was that for me, it was just padding. Uh, like you say, it's just bad—not even bad storytelling. It's bad game design. Because at the end of the day, like, like you were arguing, if someone decides to shoot someone or, or doesn't decide to shoot someone, that's not going to end in the same ending. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> not going to produce the same mm-hmm. end to a story. That <laughs> things are going to drastically change. And yet, with all these games with more choices, you end at the same point, and that confuses me. Like cause in in Grand Theft Auto, I forgave it a bit more because it, it more felt. It felt more like a game decision than anything else. It, it, it was, I, and I think that's a fault of the game design in anything more than anything because it was obviously trying not to be. It was trying to make me care about the characters. But uh, for me, I just found myself thinking, well, if I have this guy's pad, that's better than having this guy's pad. <laughs> uh, so, um, but regards Nico specifically, this is, this is an argument that's been going, I've heard it many, many times, but I guess it was brought up most by n guy, crawl, and uh, Stephen Zotillo on on guy's blog, and Stephen was arguing that what well, you argued, Joe, that basically the way Nico acts in the second half of that game is not constant with how he acts in the first half of that game. So yeah. he didn't he didn't feel attached to character. Whereas n guy, I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on this because I think it's a really interesting point, which I I think I'd, I'd come to, but maybe not quite as as well put as n guy had, which is that maybe what we're seeing of Nico in that game is is not what we should take at face value if you get my drift, and in, in, in that, say, in those gameplay moments where he goes into, the, into that kind of rage and psychopathic rage, maybe that's just <laughs> for show, maybe that's just him getting out all of his emotions, not really uh, showing what he's actually thinking or, or down deep down. And uh, I think it's interesting because it's one of those few games where you are with a character for so long, but you never get access to his inner thoughts. Uh, I, I don't know if that. Changes things, or often end guys may be looking a bit too deeply into something which is actually more obvious. I don't know. What, what do you guys think? I mean, have you have you both played Grand Theft? Auto? I know Joe, you've played Grand Theft Auto Four. Did you get? Oh the, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. I, in fact, uh, Grand Theft Auto Four was the first Grand Theft Auto game that I actually completed all the way because I felt like it was a much better character experience than than previous editions. So. Um, I know that that doesn't address the actual (laughs) question at hand, but (laughs) that's my comment. Um, It's like watching The Sopranos, right? Um, I – you know, there were people who watched The Sopranos and who were sort of invested in this the way that, uh, you know, they might be invested in a soap opera or something, right? But – to me, these, these are such, such cartoony people that, um, that in the end, you know, I, I wasn't really surprised that he would, you know, be overcome by his greed. And, uh, was it like a textured, like good story? I no, definitely not, you know, but, um, but compared to previous Grand Theft Autos, was it textured and good? I think absolutely, you know, and, um, I think that the, uh, the sort of growing up that the series did there and as well as the the less ambitious nature of trying to uh you know provide you with so many things at the end of the game i mean grand theft auto 4 is also one of the few games where you end it like you you don't own things like car dealerships and you can't go buy you know lots and lots of cl- i mean you have this very finite set of stuff you can acquire um you know i think i think that uh that it 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 worked for me, for, for, for how I took it and, and seemed, you know, consistent enough. Um, I, I don't think that, you know, Nico was ever that sympathetic of a character and I can definitely see the argument that, um, that, you know, towards the end, uh, he, he, he's definitely a lot more of a ruthless character who, uh, you know, when well, he's, he's turned on himself, which I, which I took as being kind of, you know, part of the point, a clumsy point but, you
1: know I'd go down actually Um, I think the the emphasis they were obviously going through and something you pointed out is that they wanted to have a tragic ending for that character, rather Mm -hmm. than this successful ending, and uh, to do that, they had to do what they did to Nico, which uh, maybe they could have Made it a bit less sudden, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I, I go with you. I think it it, it got the point across, and um, for me, I prefer the storytelling in general. Unite. So. Uh, the Game of Thrones uh, Network. Me, red. Potion. Game UK. Ninja Fat Pigeon. through Game and Scrooge Cast.
0: TheGamerScene dot
1: game. Be UGN offers a little something for everyone, from the serious analysis of Big Red Potion to the fun but well-informed GamerDork UK. Frugal Gaming will bring you gaming bargains to help keep your hobby alive, whilst Ninja Fat Pigeons offers one of the best and friendliest communities on the internet. And if you're one of us mature gamers, find like-minded comment with thegamerc.com.
3: The Unified Gamers
1: Network. www.unifiedgamersnetwork.com This is something Andrew van Bosch wrote for Garma Sutra last year about Gordon Freeman and, and how the player can never actually be him because while, they, while Gordon will not do what you don't want him to, say like uh, a poster saying in Grand Theft Auto 4 you can't not kill someone in that choice, Gordon won't do something that you don't want him to, but he can't do stuff that you'd want him to. And again, this goes, it's a fantastic point you're bringing up, Sean, because I think it is really relevant, the point of technology with narrative and how that limits character development but I, at the same time I, I think game development is kind of so obsessed with graphics that sometimes narrative gets lost in, in, the, in the development and uh, I wonder whether games are fully exploring choice relating to character development and, and whether you know should, should, it be, should it be possible in Half-Life to turn the gun on Alex? Would that, should that be part mm-hmm. of that game or is that just a, a feature that no one actually wants?
2: I don't want it. (laughs) Um, I, uh, no, I think, I think that this is the, this is the tension. I mean, if you're reading your novel and you came to, you know, page 249 and all of a sudden it was blank. Right. And just, you know, your ad here. Right. Um, that would be a weird experience. And I think that that's a lot of what causes problems for us, um, is again, you know, that, that flexibility, the interactivity itself. Um, as far as like, should you be able to turn your gun on Alex? I mean, I think that, I think that what we need actually in games is more authorial decisions. You know, uh, again, to bring it back to, um, characters that I think are awesome in games, uh, Jade from Beyond Good and Evil is certainly one of those characters that I think is, is absolutely phenomenal. One of the best, uh, female role models out there, but also, uh, one of the best combinations of being both sort of physically dexterous and, and dangerous, but also, uh, very mentally acute and, uh, participating at a level of, you know, intelligence that you can appreciate. Um, in, in Beyond Good and Evil, there are there are several sequences that are are quite well scripted. You know, there's this really climactic uh, chase sequence that is is incredibly cinematic. And in order to make it both cinematic and playable, the gameplay is is very restricted, and you have virtually none of the normal movement set that you have uh, throughout the rest of the game. But the effect that it delivers is spot on for the narrative and could not have been delivered in a game where you could have made a radically different decision or where you maintained all of your different control options while that sequence was going on um, and so i think that you know we actually need developers i think to be more brave and to make those tough choices you know there's a an axiom in in web design that that like putting everything on the page is easy it's it's ripping everything out You know, uh, right. most most programs that you install have like all these widgets turned on and you gotta just figure out which ones you wanna turn off in order to make everything usable, you know. Um and uh and I think that that, that in games we've seen this as, you know, the the technology race has been so significant and everything has just grown up to where we're just throwing everything that we can at a game and it's partly, you know, the, the marketing and the business where they want like those bullet points that they can put on the back of the package or in the press releases and Um, and if you don't have, you know, eight more guns in version three, then, you know, you're not as good as version two. And, um, you know, I think it it gets all wrapped up in all of that stuff and, um, and it's, it's just, it's really sad because it it undermines what could be happening. And I think that a lot of game developers would actually rather be making games that were slightly more limited, but, you know, again, until people stop equating like the value of a game with the number of hours that they spend playing it, um, Mm. then, you know, things are going to be difficult, but.
0: I think Mirror's Edge kind of did that because that's a game that made some very clear decisions to make the game the way they wanted to make it, even though, you know, technically that game could have been a first person shooter. I mean, you can use guns in that game, but they don't really work particularly well and they're not really fun to use. They made it so that you kind of want to just, you know, play the game in this very specific way by running around and by, you know, doing quick takedown moves or whatever, so you could just keep running, keep running. And I mean, that game isn't flawless by any stretch of the imagination, but I think that the decisions they did make to kind of, um, restrict you in many ways, but at the same time you know, kind of guide you into the way that they want that game to be played and the the experience that they want you to have with that game. I think they did a fairly good job, and I'd like to see that expanded upon more if they ever do make a second one.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. I think Mirror's Edge is a really interesting example because, like you say, it's in the first-person perspective and it doesn't use bullets and guns, and uh, I'll put this in the show notes as opposed to uh, another previous guest of the show, James Batchelor, relating to that. What I think is interesting about it is that it it could have had that silent protagonist that we've been mm-hmm. talking about, but Faith has a voice and a, and a clear-cut character uh, design. And um, it's interesting because I know, Joe, we talked about it before and you said you thought the cutscenes in that game or all, all the storytelling more appropriately uh, could have been done in-game. Sure. Uh, and I would to some extent agree. But in principle, I feel like it, they were right to do what they did. I don't know if it's just poor execution, but I think what it did... This is, uh, uh, I don't know if I'm, I'm... This is just my odd uh, impressions of game design, but because they added voice to that character in the first person, I didn't feel like I was becoming her or I had to project myself onto her or anything like that. I thought, this is a character, and the only reason the first person perspective is there is so that I can experience the action of that game,
3: mm.
1: not to ex- not to experience any storytelling in it. So I'm fine with storytelling being separate, and yet they did such a lousy job with the storytelling in that game that I just... I'm not sure whether that that's... Quite right. I don't know. Uh, would you do you think it was just poor execution of, of the storytelling in that in that sort of cartoon, kind of lousy animation they used, or, or is it something that they? Should, if you have a first person game, you should kind of keep everything in that first person view.
0: I think it. You know, it's kind of just. It's a game by game basis type of thing. I don't think you necessarily have to keep everything in you know first person and a first person shooter, but you know, uh, I also don't think that. The way that the thing with Mirror's Edge is just everything felt very detached.
3: Right,
0: like those cutscenes, uh, they weren't particularly attractive to watch, and they weren't. You know, the, the style was completely opposite of what you basically saw in the game, and I think that, you know, had they even just gone with in-engine cutscenes for that, it might have done a better job of kind of getting you into the story, even though it was wasn't particularly well told to begin with, but. I, I think it's a you know it depends on what kind of game you're trying to do. It depends on what kind of experience you want people to have if you want something like half life where you're in this character's head the whole time and you want everything to happen around you. I think absolutely it should be all you know first person type of experience. but if you're going to do something that you know requires um outside storytelling like you know cutting to different perspective uh, areas where your character won't be and and, and filling like the uh, player in on stuff that the character shouldn't know yet you know, absolutely go with some type of cutscene that, that fits in with the style of the rest of the game. And I think that the visual design in in, Mass, in uh, Mirror's Edge was so great that the fact they didn't extend that into the cutscenes uh, with some type of in-engine work or something a little bit uh, more fitting to the gameplay and to the style of the actual game is kind of sad. And I really hope they, they change that in the second one so that it's a little bit more engaging.
2: Mm-hmm. I, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't ever actually play Mirror's Edge beyond just the very uh, introductory parts. Um, so I can't really comment too much on it. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's not a, a wholly unusual thing. You know, um, I remember uh, things like uh, Max Payne, as well as Infamous, which right. utilized the sort of comic book approach uh, right. in their cutscenes, scenes. And I think um, for both of them, you know, they, it does help. Invoke kind of this other Atmosphere uh, that, that Kind of extends the atmosphere of the actual Gameplay itself
1: I disagree I didn't like Infamous's Comic book cutscenes I, I I guess I found a cheap way Of reminding you that this is meant to be a comic book Superhero game and uh, I thought The game uh-huh. had the strengths on its own to, to, to Do that uh, and it was just Maybe they felt their engine was A little bit too realistic looking for that game to to convey the, the superhero image, and then you had this really, so so what they did is is kind of emphasise it in those cutscenes. I think that was a poor choice. I just I'm 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 not sure if it's. I think Joe, you're right to say it's by game by game basis, but I kind of have more respect for a game that tries to do everything from one perspective, and I, sure. I think you know that always helps character attachments uh, because it remind it, it kind of. This is like you were saying at the top of the show, Sean. Developers may come of it from a te- technological approach, but at the end, what they'll do in their design, if you're writing for a third person character, you'll write it differently than you're writing for a first person character. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I think it sets that relationship. And I, maybe it's lazy from on my part. I don't want to <laughs> attempt to experience anything else, but I, I, I play first person games different to the way I play third person games in terms of how I, Relate to the character, and I—I'm pretty sure I'm not the only person who does that.
2: No, I think there's actually uh, more than a little bit of truth to kind of the old uh, axiom that if you want the person to really uh, fall in love with the character that you've created, make it a third-person uh, perspective, and that if you want the the player to feel more the you know experience of being that character, make it the first-person perspective, and and you know it, the distinction might seem relatively small, but I think, I think in the end it makes all the difference. You know, if you're, um, I think, I think with video games though, what we, you, you know, that's something that applies to books I think as well. And, and film, you know, um, sure. but, but with video games, we have this other kind of thing, which is that we can almost, we have the distinction in the first person mode of, of either feeling what the character feels because we're taking on that character as ourselves. Or we could also just be kind of like some kind of little alien driving around this little person machine, you know, or, or this little character machine, you know. And uh, and so in the first-person perspective, you know, um, I mean, it's almost like games like Mech Warrior or something where they, they, they show you the cockpit. I mean, uh, that that whole, you know, view of the arm and the gun and everything like that also, also becomes sort of this standardized cockpit HUD, you know. Uh, where it's like you're 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 piloting this 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 uh, character rather than either sympathizing with the character or watching the character you know enact their own volition. So and things get complicated.
1: <laughs> they do. I think we we've just on the show before we talked about Batman Arkham Asylum, Joe, and yep. uh, it's really interesting because we kept comparing that game to Bioshock. I mean, have, have you played it yet, Sean?
2: I've only played the demo so far. So. Uh, you you
1: really should play it, but uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I say that about a lot of games. So, um <laughs> but it's it's interesting because what you're what what you're saying is something N. Guy Crow kind of said in his five roles of a player, and, and two of them were one was a guardian angel, which I guess is like you're saying the third person perspective where you're guiding a character through a story, and you can you want the player to form that relationship with the character, and then then there's the actor role which, like you're saying, is more about experience in the world. What I think was interesting about Batman Arkham Asylum is it was third person. It was very much about telling Batman's story through that game. But they did such a good job with the world itself that it kind of had its hand in both pies for me. It was kind of like, I'm enjoying being... uh, Sorry, I'm enjoying... Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll say that, actually. I'm enjoying being Batman to some extent and having all his abilities, because he's quite a simplistic character, so it's easy for me to just go, I'm, I'm Batman in this world because I get to do all the cool stuff that he can do. But then I have the, the joy of exploring that world at the same time, and I, I don't know whether it just... It's a, that's maybe why people are raving about this game, because it, it actually is one of the rare examples where it's a third-person game in a really, really rich world. And I find third-person games tend to have because obviously they can compared to a first person game have a less rich world, and like we 're going on a tangent there's very little to do with character design, but I do think <laughs> perspective is a, a really important part of relating to a character yeah,
2: yeah i think I think also that you have you have you always have to consider how people perceive a character before the game gets made. And I think that a lot of games that get based on popular franchises live or die based on how they treat the characters in relation to how the fans expect them to treat the characters. So that's sort of how I've perceived, even from a largely outsider perspective, uh the the, the reception that I've seen for, for Arkham Asylum is that clearly they nailed something about the Batmanness of Batman that other games have failed to bring to the table.
1: Absolutely, this is something we were we were raving about on the <laughs> show previous. I mean, what, uh, Joe, you, you have played it. I mean, am I am I just looking reading too much into that game, or am I maybe touching on something?
0: No, no, no. I, you're dead on on that one. I think that you know that you are basically in this character's head, despite the third person nature of, of the game. You you are like in that game. You technically can do things that aren't. Like, I mean, you can run up to a bunch of guys, just beat them up in most cases, unless they have automatic weapons, which later on in the game they do. But, you know, I mean, you kind of don't want to do that. You kind of want to find all these, hey, there's a there's totally a thing up in the sky that I can grapple up to and pick these guys off one by one, just like the Batman would and the the you know giving you that option of you know saying well you can either play it like batman or play it like you know a, a normal idiot that put on a bat suit and ran into a bunch of thugs in an alleyway which would do i mean you, you actually kind of want to do it like batman and you want to step into this character's shoes and do it the way they want to do it and the fact that the entire world of that game is built around you know making you want to make these choices as batman would it, really brings you into the game and puts you in the shoes of this character and creates a third-person experience that really, I mean, puts you in a first-person mindset of, well, yeah, I'm in that guy's head, now what I want to do with it.
1: And I guess, like Sean was saying, because you have the, the character kind of laid out before, you, before you're before even playing the game, that mm-hmm. to take advantage of it is maybe easy, but at the same time, not many licensed games do that, so uh, I guess that's where that game was. Going... I think it's a really, really important point you brought up earlier, Sean, regarding technology and how that relates to character design. I mean, you've been involved in game design to some extent, uh, and you've lectured on it. So in, in a game developer's mind, and relating it to what the publisher wants from a game, where do you think character design comes into play how how high up the list of features this game has to have where where does character design or good character design to be more specific come into it is it important or do are game developers thinking about other things first
2: well you know i think it I, and again i can't speak for for other people for sure but but i think some of the considerations that have to come into play um really uh uh, let's just say that there are a few different considerations. Uh, so, first of all, um, what kind of a game is it even? You know, I, there are a lot of games that stand up with no characters at all. You know, think of all the puzzle games and car- card games and things like that. Um, then there are a lot of games. I mean, when I hear Joe talking about Arkham Asylum, it's it's really clear that that the actual uh, the the grace with which they have executed the control and the gameplay really matters to the enjoyment of the game. And so, if you're in an environment that is already fun to interact with, um, then the interaction is almost a given, and what the content that fills up that interaction can become somewhat secondary, right? And I'm not right. saying that the content in Arkham Asylum is necessarily secondary, but I mean, it's it's when you marry those two things that you get a game that's truly remarkable, right? And... I think that, uh, that for a lot of, of, of games, game projects, that in and of itself is, is a big part of it. You know, obviously with, with a game like Doom, the, the Marine didn't matter very much. You know, it was the gameplay of Doom and the fact that you were playing a shooter like Space Invaders that was now in a first person perspective. That was what was really remarkable, um, there. I think then you have, uh, the aspect of, if you have, you know, the characters in other ways can make up for weakness in, in gameplay. So there, there are the game projects that get created because of the, you know, the availability of a franchise. And that mm-hmm. certainly can't be underestimated. And, you know, we, uh, we always, like, whenever a good franchise game comes out, you know, people talk about it like it's the first one that's ever happened. Um, but really, uh, you know, sometimes that's a perfectly good starting point for a game, you know. Right. And, um, I mean, the talk about Arkham Asylum reminds me of the talk that came out when Neversoft first started doing Spider-Man, you know? Yeah, and, right. um, they, Spider-Man, and then, uh, Activision did, uh, Spider-Man 2, and I think handed it off to Treyarch, right? I could yeah. be wrong on that, but, um, That's right. But, uh... And those, those two games really, I mean, those were the first games where you played, you felt like Spider-Man, and it brought that character to life in a way that games had not previously been able to do. And so, uh, you know, sometimes starting with a character is a perfectly good way to, to go about it. I think those are just, you know, a couple of the considerations. I think in, uh, in the game industry, you know, uh, characters also play, can, can sometimes play a much more political role you know, uh, there are, you know, there, there was sort of the backlash, uh, against, um, you know, the pink box games, which was, you know, the idea that you take, you take a regular game for kids and put it in a pink box and now it's a game for girls, you know? Um, and, uh, and I think the same thing happens kind of like characters get used in the same way. Uh, you know, for example, a lot of the time, you know, uh, the the narrative of a game is largely to cover up the fact that the game revolves around you know some insane violence, some incredibly shaky you know moral and ethical decisions being made on the part of the protagonist in order to facilitate the insane violence. You know, right. uh, oftentimes um, super shaky like political motivations and, and messages being kind of uh, woven in there in a way to to support what ultimately you know we want to make a game where 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 I'm killing a bunch of things and um, and so justifying those things that you're killing, I think, is sometimes, you know, too much of of a consideration from, like, a a marketing and business perspective. Um, You know, I think people make games, obviously, for all all sorts of reasons. And so I think when, you you know, reading some some discussion about, like, uh, you know, something like Spider, The Secret of Bryce Mansion, and the way that uh, if you think about the way that the Spider protagonist works in that game – you know, it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting where you, the, you know, the spider really has nothing to do with it, um, except that it, it is this vehicle through which you get to explore this much broader story that's going on, which at first you don't even realize is there to be explored because you're so focused on this foreground character. And I think that, uh, that's something that, that games also have yet to kind of learn how to do well is the whole notion, you know, something like the, um, you know, uh, the Great Gatsby wouldn't be the same if it had a different perspective narrator, you know, uh, where it's not the the quote-unquote protagonist of the story doesn't always tell the story itself, you know, and um, we as gamers might be able to find a place where we can kind of live in the game world that isn't necessarily trying to be the hero per se, um, but might still be something that's that's interesting, emotionally resident and so forth.
1: So, yeah, you mentioned spider and, and it's... I was reading about the creators of um, *Time, Gentlemen Please*, Dan and Ben, mm-hmm. and I forget their their surnames. But how basically those characters are born out of them passing cartoons to each other in a, in a class and drawing various settings and and uh, things happening to each of their characters. So one one guy would draw something, and then about the other guy's character, something terrible happening to that character, and the other guy would draw something back, which was even worse. So and it's it just makes me think about adventure games are obviously, obviously placing get character design and protagonist design very high. The other, the other example that came to mind because we're talking about Mirror's Edge is when you have professional writers brought in and uh, mm-hmm. because Mirror's Edge had Rihanna Pratchett brought in to, to write on it mm-hmm. and she wrote on Heavenly Sword as well and we've talked about Heavenly Sword before and how uh, the main character in that game, Noriko, is maybe the best and only good thing about that game uh, because... <laughs> She, she's there's so much to her uh, that despite the fact that she's incredibly uh, she wears incredibly skimpy clothes or whatever that she actually somehow have a, this respect for her as a, as a strong female character which I usually don't get when you have such a skimpily dressed female character in a game but uh, unfortunately the game around her was kind of pants so <laughs> you were left with a, with a story that you wanted to find out about but uh, a game that you didn't really want to play or at least that's how I played it Again again, relating it to, to game design, what do you think about bringing in writers to write characters who from from who've been experienced with other mediums? Do you think it can just translate that easily, or is writing for games something that is completely different to writing for a film or for a book or for a television series
2: um wow, another huge one I, yeah, I no, think... no. <laughs> sorry <laughs> it's I mean, because it it gets both to just how do you even conceive of a project the size of a game? You know, Um, I mean, we we like to think about these kind of solo game developer rock stars who kind of make these scenes single handedly. But I mean, mostly we're talking about things that are made by quite a few people. And even if it was just three or four people, it's. You know, if you if you imagine trying to write like you know a college thesis with like four of your closest college buddies, I mean, that's it'd be pretty difficult to write something that would really get an A, right? I mean, it would sound weird and like all the different parts might not go together and so forth. And and I think that that's what writing for games is is like. It's like you have this you have this huge group of people who are trying to like come together on a vision and everything and um and when and, and then you have all of these technical limitations that get imposed and you have sort of the way that things have to work due to quote-unquote features, you know. Uh, the, the whole just range of things that are trying to be balanced uh, gets, gets very, very complicated. I think, you know, what we've seen the, the, the bringing in the outside writers uh, sort of work. We've also seen being based on, you know, existing literary material uh, work, but we've also seen those things fail uh, terribly, and so I think that it's not a guarantee. And you know, in some situations, it might be a very good idea. But of course, I mean, if we're if we're just talking about bringing in you know like Hollywood writers into the game industry, well, I mean, the last thing the game industry needs is to become more like Hollywood, right? So, um, so you know, there's there's got to be something else. I think going on, and I, I think that a big part of of sort of the the, the bad reputation that game writing has, and and you know you think back to things like the all your base are belong to us and everything, right? Like, like these are are sort of golden things that we cherish from you know gaming's history. But but at the same time, it's it's very understandable that this is the the reason behind that is because the writing and the, and the narrative was often you know the least important thing. The most important thing right. was that the game didn't break,
0: you know that it. That it
2: had, <laughs> graphics and colors, right? And I mean, um, so, it, all of these other things mattered far more. And so I think as we get the luxury to even care about writing, um, things are just bound to improve. And and another thing is is people who actually have played games writing games. You know, I, I think that, that we're on the cusp of having a generation of games that is just going to be absolutely beyond what we can even really think about now because all of these people who have completely grown up playing games in the modern you know context right not just you know like oh yeah i started playing you know space invaders per se you know every once in a while in the arcade or um you know but like i grew up with you know games on my tv all the time games on my phone games in the back of the seat in the van you know games um at my school games everywhere i mean the This future generation of game makers is I think going to be, um, you know, have a whole other level of savvy and I think that that's been a big problem with with writing in games so far is that the people who think about writing have, you know, not been the people who are necessarily making the games, you know. Um, And I think that's why, you know, companies like BioWare have such a good um, reputation for narrative and stuff because, you know, the doctors (laughs) have, um, you know, a good sense of, of narrative and story and of the history of that. And, um, and I know too from, you know, early E3 conversations with people like, uh, you know, Bruce Shelley about like Age of Empires and stuff. I mean, keenly aware of, uh, what's happening. I mean, that's why something like Age of Mythology would have ever got created, you know, is because of the existing interest there and, in, um, in trying to marry, uh, you know, sort of this literary movement with the game movement. You know, what a lot of people in games don't realize is that there's been, all sorts of crazy things happening in the world of narrative, you know, and, and, you know, if you look at like English departments today, they aren't teaching composition, uh, the way that they were, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. And, um, and And the notion of what narrative is and, and what it could be is is continuing to evolve you know outside of the Hollywood mainstream and outside of games and, and outside even of the printed word and So I think as we start to see those worlds being able to to come together more and more. Um, which, which I think, things especially like you know the rise of independent development on like the iPhone as well as on the uh, various download services for the for the home consoles. Um, as those things get bigger and bigger, we're going to see more and more of of those people coming together and making really interesting uh, narrative experiences in the interactive format.
0: Just to go along with what you just said, Sean, there's two big games this summer that were based on previous properties written by Hollywood writers that um, both turned out pretty differently one of course was Ghostbusters which would they brought Dan Aykroyd and Hal Ramison to write the script on that and the other of course was Batman last week where they brought Paul Dini who's a, a veteran of the comic and the animated series to write the, the dialogue and the, the, the plot line for that game and the way both of those games were successful is totally different I mean whereas Ghostbusters I mean yes they're speaking dialogue that sounds like those characters from the movie and and, you know, yes, the situations are somewhat similar to something that would happen in one of the Ghostbusters movies. But as far as, you know, immersion and as far as um, creating this believable world that, you know, the characters really fit in, I think Ghostbusters kind of – faltered, it felt almost like a you know a third person shooter with these 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 elements slapped on top and you know even though the characters were there, the dialogue was there, something was just missing about that experience. And whereas Batman, I mean, they literally nailed that character, the writing was implemented so perfectly into that game world and to that experience and everything felt exactly the way it should have been for that type of universe, for that game. And I think that I guess Mm -hmm. it's pretty pretty much down to the development team and like how you know how they they take this stuff that's been written for them, they take this material and they take this writer that they have on staff basically to help them with this game and how they implement that into the design of their game and into the way they want to present this to audiences. I think that's the real key. And you know the writing of course can go either way, but the actual designers themselves have to think of an intelligent way to make this all fit in with the game that they want to make
2: about the comparison between Ghostbusters and, and Arkham Asylum. I felt when I played Ghostbusters, I felt very much the way that I felt when I played, uh, the Futurama game that Mm -hmm. came out right after Futurama got canceled. And I recall that I was, I saw that game a few months before it came out and, and they were anticipating that it would be out, you know, basically in the next year. And then, uh, almost like a month after I saw the game, Futurama was canceled. And then the game came out very shortly thereafter. And it was just the saddest thing in the world because it was such an almost good game to play, and yeah. uh, but in the end it was only worthwhile to sit through the cutscenes and watch the forty-five minutes of Futurama that they had, you know, written and recorded for uh, right. the game. And then they just actually re-released it like last year on one of those DVDs that they did as a special feature to just watch all the cutscenes from that <laughs> that game. So
1: I think actually one of the the unsung masters of transplanting. Material from one medium onto another is uh, Telltale Games, with all the adventure games they do. So when they what what they did with Wallet and Gromit and with uh, Homestar Runner in particular for me, just being able to make it feel like those properties in the game, but without having really terrible puzzles to solve. That you know puzzles that made sense in that world. They were obviously contributed uh, as a thought from both sides. You know from the creators mm-hmm. of the original property and and Telltale themselves that that's why I like those games I don't think that maybe Masters oh, a bit, is a bit overloading because I, I think there are still problem with that too with all the series and those games but I'm going to drag us kicking and screaming back to our original topic and I know Joe that when we when we first discussed this you really wanted to explore what makes a good protagonist and what makes a successful protagonist and in, in terms of one that's iconic, uh, I guess, relating to what we're talking about at the top of the show. And uh, I know that you wanted to talk about a certain blue, spiky creature.
0: Yeah, I mean, when we when we first you know got into talking, me and Stan talking about this topic, I mean, he's pretty much one of the first ones that came up, and we we kind of disagreed on exactly why that character is still around these days. I mean, you know, when Sonic started, he was pretty much, I, I guess. I guess the anti-Mario, where, you know, Mario is this, like, happy, safe character who's a very, you know, likable guy, and then Sonic was this badass hedgehog that could run super fast, and totally gave you some attitude, you know, stomped his foot when you made him wait, and stuff like that, and I thought that was kind of funny, and you know, of course, everyone from our generation kind of grew up on this character and loves him, um, based, you know, based around our memories of how great he was 15 years ago, but, I mean, the the truth of the matter is that Sonic arguably hasn't made a hasn't been involved in a great game for a decade now i mean this this week would actually be the one uh, the 10-year anniversary of sonic adventure which i mean that really hurts to think that it's been that long but i mean it's probably the last great game that i mean that game wasn't even that great it was just it was very it was good it was very enjoyable and i mean aside from a few portable adventures that weren't that bad i mean he really hasn't been in a major console adventure that's been of quality that you would expect of that character if you grew up with him and i wondered like how is this character still alive right now like whereas the crash bandicoots have crashed and burned over the years and you know the spyro came and went and you know he's now pretty much just this this yearly you know release that they throw out there to the 10 fans that still care and characters like bubsy came and went in a a matter of a year yeah (laughs) arrow the acrobat like these characters that you know, they kind of they were thrown out there to be the next Sonic and Mario, and they didn't quite make it yet. Sonic has managed to last so long.
1: I was a stupid <laughs> kid who liked Bubsy. I liked I Bubsy really too. I really loved
3: Bubsy.
0: Well, he talks so much in a cartridge; like he said so many different things. Yeah, and it was cool. On that, I I actually uh, read to the Genesis one like five different times because I enjoyed playing it. Um, I didn't rent. <laughs> actually should, I still want to try Bubsy 3D one day because I hear that's a, that's a winner, but, um, <laughs> like, I mean, even like Earthworm Jim, like Earthworm Jim kind of had this character to him that people liked at the time and he had the cartoon that, you know, was pretty enjoyable and one bad game and he's in the, the crap bin for the past decade and, mm-hmm. you know, yet Sonic has consistently been involved in terrible games and, the kids still love him. My godson, who's never played any of the good gen, of the good uh, Sonic games. He's, I mean, the, the first one he played was probably Sonic Adventure Two on the Dreamcast on the, the the GameCube, the remake that they made, and that game was like two thirds crap, pretty much. <laughs> um, the Sonic parts were awesome, but uh, and I think it's real funny that Sonic continues to persist these days, despite the fact that he's not in you know these Sonic one through three caliber games anymore. That he's not really you know, out there uh, in a positive way as far as gamers go. He's in these, you know, Sonic uh, Zero-G racing and stuff like that. And I just wonder, like, what is it about that character that has made him survive this long? Is it solely the <laughs> retro love that he has? Or is there something about his design that that kids will just automatically flock to whether or not they've actually, you know, have these memories in their heads of how... Great, he used to be, and why has he persisted while you know? Whereas other characters have just come and gone.
2: Mm-hmm. I think it's the Disney effect, right? I mean, well, so so with Sonic as well as like with like Mickey Mouse. I mean, um, at this point, I think people recognize like recognition is the primary motivating factor for people liking anything, right? And so with these characters that sort of get out there and get popular. Um, they end up with this this familiarity uh bonus that that makes them these hot hot commodities in the industry and with disney you know i always I always like to remind people like what is mickey and Minnie 's motivation you know like what what do you know that Mickey Mouse ever did you know um there 's there 's no character there you know there 's there 's nothing that you love about you know like what 's the best thing about mickey Mouse like right Seriously, like you don't know, right? Like, there's nothing there. Um, who, wh- what the hell even is like goofy, right? Like, nobody knows, right? And it's this, um, <laughs> stupid, you know, it's really, I mean, I have like a deep, deep dislike of Disney stuff in general. And, um, and, and I think one of the things is just that I hate the most is how much they just get this easy pass because everybody recognizes their stuff. It's like, and, and, you know, we see that on the internet all the time. I mean, if you can get your stuff posted enough places, I mean, something becomes a bigger deal than it, than it is, you know, um, simply through familiarity and, uh, games like, you know, like with Sonic, at least at one point, And I think to, to, folks like, like me and like, like you guys, it's, it's, it's there, there were good games that had Sonic in them. And so when you saw a game with Sonic in it, you were, you know, you felt, Oh, that's it. That's a good game. And it's taken a while you know, and, and it's taken a while for the, for that to change, but the familiarity quotient still makes people willing to, I think, give them a shot. Um, mm. To to a large extent, at the same time, I mean, I you know, I haven't bought a Sonic game since you know the Dreamcast launch. So, right, you know, <laughs>
1: you've missed so much. Really, it's been, it's been a ride. <laughs> I think proportions. I mean, I mean, this this was this was my argument, Joe, and I I, I think. The, the important thing to remember with the other characters you mentioned, people like Crash Bandicoot, Lara Croft, Earthworm Jim, is that, A, they weren't as successful as Sonic was in his prime. Mm. You know, Sonic was the equivalent of Mario for Sega. Um, yeah. And that's huge. I don't think any character has ever been at the same level of recognition of uh, mainstream success as Sonic, right. uh, as, as Mario, sorry, since Sonic. Um, the other thing with all those characters, with Crash Bandicoot, I don't think he was a brilliant character designed to start off with. I just think uh, his that game just got some press, just got n- noticed, and was kind of new for for its time. And uh, he he, someone at Sony thought we have a franchise, and mm. uh, they they didn't. Um, with Lara Croft, there's all the negative connotations, you know, the fact that uh, there's quite a sexist movement against her uh, oh, sorry uh, anti-sexism <laughs> to be most <more laughs> accurate movement <laughs> against her um, with Earthworm Jim I just again not great character design he was more of a parody of anything you know more of a, a commentary on video games than anything else actually when sure. it comes down to it you know when you think of all the very very big characters in games uh, may, uh, this is why I brought up Master Chief I think Master Chief is the only one that may possibly get into that uh, upper echelon that goes with Mario and Sonic just because Halo was that successful uh, mm-hmm. And he was that centric to, to Halo, and I guess what we'll, we'll see, won't we, when the next Halo comes out, how important he was to that
3: series.
2: Oh, I was just um, companies. I mean, they, you know, they try so consciously to create these mascots. I mean, Crash Bandicoot is so much Sony trying to get Sega right, and yeah. there's there's some great stuff about um, in back in those days too, how Sony and Sega were just uh, Sony essentially like ripped off the whole. Um, the whole Sega, like, aggro ad marketing campaign with their whole, like, you are not ready campaign and stuff Mm. for, uh, PlayStation. And, um, and so there was a, there was, there was this whole history of it. And, and I mean, it was, it was really bad. You know, I remember going to press events where, um, you know, Sega was like barbecuing bandicoot burgers and stuff like that, you know. (laughs) And, uh, And so there, there was, there's this whole, you know, and, and then, and then with Microsoft, you know, I think what's, something that's really interesting, like as a footnote, is that, you know, Abe, um well, Abe from Oddworld is, is you know, my pick, but for, for whatever reason, Microsoft decided that they would try to make Munch from um, the third Oddworld game, um, who's this little kind of creature in a wheelchair, they would try to make him, like, one of their main mascots. And then, mm-hmm. as if they sort of second-guessed themselves, after they kind of started pushing Munch out, they decided to sort of bring Abe back up to the front, and they tried to, like, make um, these two guys into Xbox mascots um, for, for the first Xbox, and uh, Munch's Odyssey did sort of terribly for a lot of different reasons, most of which were related to business problems between Oddworld inhabitants, Sony of America and Microsoft. Right. And so another classic example of the business killing good games. Um, but you know, I think also people don't want, you know, the uh, weirdo oddball, you know, Abe or Munch with, you know, the ones a wheelchair and the other ones, you know, like some kind of weirdo Moses, Jesus freak kind of thing. And, um, and uh they I mean they're just not like it's not appealing to have like really good, deep characters as these like um you know mascots that can just be like slapped onto everything and used in every advertising context and everything. Um, it takes a special kind of character to stand up to that kind of abuse, I think
1: yeah, I think that's exactly why Sonic you know had all that, had, all, had all that success because he was just an answer to Mario It's as simple as that, and uh, there's nothing more to him. Mm. than than that Um, I think a a better parallel than anything for Sonic in video games is and this is going to sound a little bit odd is uh, Final Fantasy (laughs) 7 because (laughs) because if you think about it right that game sold crazy and Square Enix thought well we have an IP that we can do lots more with and those games have not really ever been good. You know, all the, all the secondary Final Fantasy VII games have not really ever been any good. But they've sold, and they've sold on the basis of the first one's success. And I, I think when a game or a character reaches a certain level... And this is for goes beyond video games. This goes to everything. This goes to Disney. This goes to television series. you know, you just have to look at the success of some long running. You know, look at Friends. Why is that still going? Because it did so well in its first few series. Um, or why was it still going? Sorry, I'm not living in <laughs> 2005, honestly. Um, <laughs> so I, I just, what I'm just saying is that I think if you reach a certain level of success, that you can get away with anything, like Sean is saying. Do you guys another think? Kid, oh, sorry,
0: uh, you. I was gonna say, do you think that like we'll ever see another like mascot at all? I mean, they, I mean, I guess you know, in some advertising and stuff, Drake has kind of been put forward. Uh, you know, and, and, and Sony has continued like the Ratchet series going, but they never really put Ratchet in the spotlight. His games have always just kind of existed. Um, you know, and Microsoft doesn't really put anyone forward as their you know quote-unquote mascot. I mean, of course, Mario is still thriving and, and Link is still very marketable. But, I mean, do you really think we'll see a new mascot created? Do you think, like, the Assassin's Creed heroes or anything will become, like, the Ubisoft mascot or Sam Fisher even? I, I just don't think that that model really works anymore, but I'd be interested to see what you guys think.
1: See, this time last year, I'd have said Sackboy.
0: Yeah, actually, you know what? That's That's dead on.
1: And but then Little Blue Planet had its problems,
0: mm. so
2: now I wouldn't say Zach Boy, mm. and now I have no answer for you. So
0: yeah,
2: there you go. <laughs> yeah, I think that it's the kind of thing that early on, when uh, game consoles were were sort of more seen to be tied to like a particular uh, set of software, you know, that that it mm. was seen to be more beneficial from a from an advertising and marketing point of view, but I think. Uh, the strategy that that i 've observed at least from Microsoft and Sony over the last few years is to just sort of um, rotate their sort of mascot positions on you know marketing materials and stuff through like the latest characters that are coming out you know you 'll see mm-hmm. uh, Sony doing you know like the the p s p packages that they do and things like that you know they're they're rotating through different ips a lot of which are are first party ips um, but at the same time also working with third parties. Um, to make, uh, you know, good packages and stuff like that. You know, the MGS uh, uh, PlayStation 3 set, you know, mm. um, the Halo Xbox. You know, I think that that's kind of the direction that 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 impulse has taken. And I think that it's partly because, on the one hand, it's just so, so difficult to create a mascot that resonates with people like that. But I think also because as sort of, again, you know, the technology point of view, as these kind of platform... Uh, uh, stewards, they have to, in some ways, not let their first-party efforts overwhelm the efforts of all of the different third-party developers. And so I think that if you are seen as being totally endorsing of your own characters and everything and never allowing anybody else to kind of have that first-class citizenship in in marketing or promotion, um, then I think that makes it much more difficult to sort of negotiate the kinds of deals they want to, to get out of different companies. So I think that's that's also... Part of the Nintendo's problems that they've been facing lately is that they, they, I never see them giving up on, you know, Mario and their characters as being Mm -hmm. uh, their mascots. But I think that's going to eternally create a situation where third party developers feel slighted. And it's the same thing that they said during GameCube's days, and and they're saying it now during the Wii's days about, uh, you know, that Nintendo steals too much of the attention with its first party games. So. Mm
1: Okay, I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to tie things up and then as I was thinking that, I was thinking, well, I've got a few more questions I want to ask. I'm going to try <laughs> and keep these uh, concise then. And, and just to say, I there was so much we haven't talked about because it's such a broad topic. We haven't talked about the idea of, you know, defining your own character, games like Fallout and Fable, which let you customise your character. And, and yeah. you know, we, we I think because we talked previously about choice and morality on the show, so we kind of try to steer clear of that. And, and we didn't bring up stereotypes and things like Left 4 Dead and and how that handles stereotypes and and all the other games and uh, I'll I'll, I'll leave a link in the show notes to an article I wrote about uh, Left 4 Dead stereotypes in particular but if we tried to we'd be here all night so I'm going to, like I said, leave it to three last questions Um, no, two, two, (laughs) (laughs) one, zero. no, just two just two questions the the first question is um, yes or no answer, guys do you think that there will ever be a mainstream video game icon who has the level of complexity that we see in characters like Solid Snake and uh, in uh, Nathan Drake and, and people like that. Joe, you first.
0: I'm sorry, do I think that there will be another one up to that Well long?
1: No, no, there will be A, because I would argue that Solid Snake and Nathan Drake haven't become video game icons. I'd say they're very niche I icons. See. Okay. So uh to, akin to the marios to the Sonic someone who is mainstream no no uh has mainstream right. notoriety
0: no I, I don't i think that time has passed i mean i, I honestly i just thought of one that, that ubisoft's kind of putting the rabbits out there as like right. their mascot recently but even then they will never reach the level of mario and sonic and i really don't see that ever happening um especially not the way the gaming industry has been has been moving
2: okay Sure. <laughs> I I'm going to go exactly the opposite. I think absolutely um, it's just inevitable that eventually games are going to grow up, and and I mean they're growing up right now, and uh, you know the 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 amount of excitement around things like Heavy Rain, I think, just show how much like real adults want to. Uh, play games, you know, and, and want games that, that speak to them and on the level that they expect all of their media to, to be operating on. And so just like the way that, um, you know, you, you can sort of snicker at it, but I mean, the way that people love like The Godfather or Scarface or, um, any of these other, uh, you know, film protagonists, uh, I think that we're going to see people loving video game protagonists sort of at the same level, and that's going to create a whole new raft of issues and so forth that we're going to have to deal with and probably won't be entirely good for the industry, but it'll be something. So
1: I'm not going to answer because I'm, I'm, I'm a coward. Okay, so final, <laughs> <laughs> final question, and I'm going to, Joe, strictly say, Sean, a yes or no answer. <laughs> Uh, so, yes or no, and no more than that, have video games explored video game protagonists successfully so far, or is there far more to explore? So, ignore that or, and answer yes uh-huh. or no. <laughs> I was going to say,
2: your logic be lies, a yes or no answer, but alright. <laughs>
1: the or is in, bra- that's, that's a parenthetical or statement.
2: <laughs> um, no. Just- <laughs> no.
3: No. I okay.
1: Think- <laughs> Sean No. Yay. All right. Right. <laughs> That's free nose. I'm going to say no as well. Okay, um Wow. <laughs> we got to start talking. Um
3: oh, yeah, okay. that was another
1: another epic episode. And just I want to underline uh, I know that Sean mentioned heavy rain, but we didn't tell him to. Was, honestly. <laughs> we don't have just... actually
0: Silent Hill was on the tip of my tongue like six times and it didn't come out, so we'll have to do a part two someday where I could just yeah. talk about Silent Hill.
1: I, when, when Sean mentioned indie games, I was very tempted to mention Braid, but I, I, I restrained <laughs> myself. Um, okay, so <laughs> that, that has been epic, and uh, for that I thank you so much, Sean, for joining us for it
2: and <laughs> well, for surviving it. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. It's really good to get on here with you guys, and we'll have a discussion. We'll have to talk more.
1: Oh yeah, God, I, I think this is going to continue. Um, Sean, <laughs> Uh, You should tell us, I know we've had Trevor and and Shane come on the show and tell us about First Wall Rebate, but I think you'll do a better job than them, so please tell us
2: Uh more about your show. First Wall Rebate, a thoughtful gaming podcast. Um, Come in and listen to me and and my good friends uh, Trevor Dodge and Shane Hinton talk about games, culture, literature, politics, art, games. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We post semi-regularly, maybe a couple times a month usually, and uh, that's at firstwallrebate.com. Come and get involved. Absolutely.
1: You've got a show coming up, haven't
2: you? Uh, We do. We'll we'll have a new show coming out, I believe, this next week. And um, we're getting back settled into our regular schedule. We had kind of a little summer hiatus while people moved around the country and and got settled with new life situations and so forth. So now we are uh, sort of on the ball and uh, rolling uh, forward, so...
1: Excellent stuff. And any other um, plugs or shout-outs? I know that you you sent me a link to to something which you, I think you should definitely get out
3: there. So <laughs> uh, <laughs>
1: please um, do.
2: <laughs> well. Absolutely. I always encourage people to check out, uh, my projects linked from, uh, SeanRider.com And, uh, especially I think the one that you're mentioning, Sinan, is, uh, Crash Bomb, which is a project that I created with, uh, my good friend, Chris Bishop, who, um, you might know, depending on what website you go to, you'll have Chris from the, uh, t-shirt on Threadless of the Two Unicorns Humping, which he designed. <laughs> <laughs> um, pbskids.org, which he also designed. So, uh, if you like either of those two things, you should check out um, crashbomb.com, which is a, a social gaming website. Um, anyone who uh, uh, requests an invite on crashbomb.com uh, can get in. Uh, we're still in a private beta right now, but if you um, send us a contact through the First Wall Rebate form uh, and say that you heard about this on Big Big Red Potion, then uh, we will absolutely make sure that you get an invite right away. So, you can get in there and start trading all of your wee contact numbers with your friends and everything. It makes things a lot easier. I don't know. What did you think about it? It's
1: Oh God, you've explained me. I haven't properly tried it out yet. <laughs> oh, i no, no. uh, burnt on, burnt on air. Edit. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I'm now successfully going to feel guilty enough about trying to try it afterwards. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so you should head over to, to the, I didn't even know you guys had forums. My God, I'm exposing so much about myself today, how terrible <laughs> I am. Um, so you should head over to the, to the first world rebate forums and post big red potion one, two, three, and you'll get a free no, I don't know. Um, yeah. but <laughs> you check it out. Um, and definitely also check out Sean's own site. Like you said, SeanRider.com. Uh, thank you again so much, Sean, for joining us today. Uh, it's been uh, really, really very enjoyable. And, um,
2: please say hi to, to Trevor and Shane. Absolutely. I'll be seeing Trevor for the first time in fifteen years. Wow! Uh, wow! Next week, so and I just met Shane for the first time two weeks ago. So, wow. so this internet awesome. internet collaboration thing works, I think. But <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm terrified of the first time me and Jared are into to meet, so I think Ooh. it's just gonna. I don't know Singularity. Going <laughs> 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 it's gonna get into a fist fight. Um.
0: <laughs> I might stand you up, not for nothing. <laughs> Just to leave you there.
1: Uh, I'm tempted not to let you have plugs and shout-outs this week, Joe, but... Um, <laughs> go on, have you got any, any plugs uh, or shout-outs for this week?
0: Just, uh, I'll give a plug to TheGamerScene.com. Sinan and I were on their show this past week. I believe it's SceneCast Episode 4 with uh, Ditz, and uh, I, I don't want to say his name wrong, so I'm going to make you do it, Sinan, Uh the, the, the other guest on the show who recently changed his name.
1: Can I not use his original name?
0: Yes, uh, it's... Nemo. It, it, Nemo, and I believe his no. new name is Nemulus. Nemulus. No, no,
1: no, 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 you got it wrong. It's, it's, no, it's and not it, Eulus. It's because it's, he said it's like uh, Nemo, as in Captain Nemulus. Nemo, as in Nautilus. So Nautilus. it's like Nemo, Nemulus.
0: Okay, well, we were on the show with that person, and uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. It was really long, uh, but I think it was a really entertaining show, and I, I give... Full credit to Ditz. Big shout out to Dits for editing that into <laughs> something of a of a listenable, entertaining uh, show. So um, definitely check that out if you want to hear. San and I ramble for like three plus hours. Yes. Anything else? Uh, no, it's just BigRedPotion.com. Uh, probably have another surplus going up this week. Maybe something about Batman if I actually get up off my ass and write it. And um, yeah, we, we get a lot of cool stuff going up on there and something extra cool coming up in a couple of weeks that you guys will enjoy.
1: Very cool. Um, on the subject of good editing jobs, I, m- I mentioned it in passing last week, but I didn't give a proper link. So I was on um, the Weeds podcast, Weeds, and I didn't give a link. So that's Weeds-podcast.com. If you listen to it, you can tell how much I screwed up the recording with my <laughs> mic problems, but you can also uh, hear how wonderfully, how uh, wonderful a job James did with the editing. So check it out. I believe it's episode 111, triple one, Weeds-podcast.com. And, uh, on the notes of uh, other podcasts, we are, we do kind of have a bit of a podcasting tour coming up, don't we?
0: Mm, yes, this week is yeah. another one, I believe.
1: Yeah, we're going to be recording with the Game Adult guys right. on Friday, and then later on this month we're recording with the Digital Cowboys. So, uh, before you get sick of us, look out for us on the Game Adult podcast and on the Digital Cowboys podcast, and uh, I'm looking forward to both of those. Yeah. Lastly, we don't tend to shout these out, so I'm going to shout them out. We do have our own blogs as well as have uh, posting on bigredpageant.com. So, Jay, you write at
0: pixelatedglee.wordpress.com. I I don't update that often, but I do link to everything I write, and uh, it's also my exclusive two human video review is uh, situated there. So, you guys should check that out.
3: Yes,
1: very um, a lot of a lot of effort went into that review.
0: Thought provoking, very much. Yes.
1: Yes, uh, and I write on my own sites, which it which is. I can't talk com. s-h-o-i-n-a-n dot com and we are part of the game reviews network at GameReviews.com and the unified gamers network at com. this has been a podcast <laughs> and <laughs> I am done we'll see you all
3: next week